1: A crippled clairvoyant who claims to commune with the dead.
3: She said that she could leave her body and see what was going on out in the world.
4: A mutant virus that threatens to wipe out the human race. Between 50 million and 100 million people worldwide died. And a bizarre weapon of war that is literally controlled by
0: pigeons. Skinner envisioned his project as being an alternative to the kamikaze pilots.
1: I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Quaint Victorian-era homes line the streets in the gated community of Lilydale, New York. At first glance, the place appears conventional, even idyllic. But look a little closer, and it becomes clear that this town is anything but. This is the home of the spiritualist movement, a faith based on the belief that its followers can commune with the spirits of the dead. It's no surprise, then, that the Lilydale Museum is a repository for a variety of most peculiar objects, like these forks, said to have been contorted solely by the power of the mind. Among this collection is a seemingly ordinary red silk curtain with ornately embroidered floral designs. But author Michelle Stacy knows this beautifully adorned fabric was made by one of the most mysterious women of the late 19th century.
3: There was so much about her that was an enigma. The layers of weirdness are just fascinating.
1: So what role does this fine tapestry play in the bizarre story of an extraordinary girl who baffled both spiritualists and scientists alike for decades? June 8, 1865, Brooklyn, New York. 18-year-old Molly Fancher is recovering from a series of head and spine injuries she incurred after her skirt gets caught and she is dragged by a horse-drawn
3: streetcar. She had headaches and vision problems, which kind of suggest a concussion. No one really quite knew what was wrong with her or whether she would recover.
1: Nursed by her doting aunt who remains by her side, Molly is bedridden for months. Then, on one cold day in February, she begins to display a terrifying
3: new symptom. She rose up off the bed with her back arched and she started having spasms. It took several people to even hold her on the bed so she wouldn't fling herself off. During one
1: particularly violent convulsion, Molly says she has lost her ability to see. The spasms also cause her throat to close, making it difficult to eat. According to Molly's aunt's diary all her niece can manage to eat for seven weeks is a small piece of cracker and one teaspoonful of milk punch. Several doctors are summoned to try to cure
3: Molly's condition. All kinds of other strange afflictions started happening to her, and none of her doctors could figure out what was going on, why this was happening. Between convulsions, Molly slips into an eerie, trance-like state. She was completely rigid and and unmoving and seemingly unconscious.
1: Equally mysterious, though, is that a few months after Molly goes blind, she seems to acquire an incredible new power. She claims to be able to speak with
3: the dead. She spoke of visiting with her dead mother, who had died when she was a schoolgirl. And she said that she could sometimes leave her body and see what was going on out in the world.
1: In June, Molly slips into another trance-like state, which lasts for the next nine years. But this one is different. Not only does she appear to be alert and functional she is suddenly blessed with the ability to elaborately embroider fabrics, all the while remaining in a trance.
3: She got to be known in her neighborhood as the creator of these tapestries and embroideries. She claimed to be doing all of this work while being sightless.
1: Over the years,
3: she makes a countless
1: number of exquisitely embroidered items, including this eight-foot-tall red silk panel which now resides in the Lilydale Museum collection.
3: The fact that she was doing it while blind, or so she said, um, added to the allure. And in 1878, her story was discovered by a reporter and hit the news big time. And the number one headline about her was that she had eaten in 1866 and a bite had not passed her lips since then.
1: The public is fascinated by this bedridden woman who is blind, does not eat, and can apparently speak to the dead. And she soon becomes known as the Brooklyn Enigma. In another bizarre twist, after 12 years of purportedly fasting, Molly begins to eat again. The mysterious recluse remains confined to her bed for the next 38 years. Until, in the early morning hours of February 11, 1916, she dies at the age of 68. But the question remains, what is the truth behind the Brooklyn Enigma? Did she really have mystical powers and survive for years without sustenance?
3: There was never a time when Molly looked emaciated or looked as if she was starving. She was a healthy looking young woman. To us now, it's crystal clear that somehow she was eating.
1: Skeptics believe that Molly's reports of fasting and claims of clairvoyance were nothing more than an elaborate hoax in which her aunt was complicit. Seeming to support this theory, after her aunt's death, Molly's psychic powers did suspiciously begin to disappear. Some speculate that the woman known as the Brooklyn Enigma, who became famous for her extraordinary life story, was motivated by a need for attention. But Molly Fancher always maintained her incredible talents were real. Whatever the truth may be, this well-worn relic in the town of Lilydale, New York continues to serve as a reminder of her unique and remarkable story. Los Angeles, California. Famous for sunshine, stars, and the glamor of Hollywood. But this sprawling metropolis also has a dark side. And relics from some of the City of Angels most notorious crimes like the Manson murders and the Black Dahlia are on display at the Los Angeles Police Historical Society. And one set of artifacts, as curator and former police officer Glenn Martin knows, was an accessory to a shocking incident so violent that it took hundreds of LAPD officers to resolve.
5: The item is dark in color. It does appear to be custom fitted. The sum total of its weight is about 41 pounds.
1: So what part did these unusually heavy garments play? in one of the largest street battles in U.S. history. February 28th, 1997, 9.17 a.m. Two men enter a North Hollywood bank. Their intentions? To make a very large withdrawal.
5: They are Larry Phillips and Hima Mata They're wearing dark clothing and ski masks. And they're carrying fully automatic weapons.
1: And the pair soon make their presence known with a barrage of gunfire.
5: They fire a bunch of rounds, which drives the patrons and the employees of the bank to the floor.
1: With the customers and bank employees cowering in fear, the two criminals begin a highly choreographed bank robbery.
5: Larry Phillips wanted to be out of there within eight minutes because that's what they had learned that the typical police response time was.
1: So they start grabbing as much cash from the bank tellers and vaults as they can.
5: They did meet their eight-minute goal. They had a tote bag loaded up with $350,000. But as the thieves
1: exit the bank, they're stopped in their tracks. They've misjudged the speed of the police response time and are completely surrounded by law enforcement. But they're not ready to go down without a fight.
5: They open fire on the, on the Los Angeles police officers.
1: Straight away, two cops are hit. And what will become one of the largest shootouts in America is underway.
5: On the rare occasions that law enforcement has to engage in a gunfight with an armed adversary, typically they last a very short period of time. We're talking just a very few seconds. But law enforcement officers soon realize that this is no ordinary shootout. The LAPD is firing and successfully striking them which normally would bring such an incident to an end, but they're not having any success in in knocking these guys down.
1: The two bank robbers take multiple direct hits to their bodies, but still keep firing back. So why can't a swarm of LAPD officers take these two crooks down? It's February, 1997. Outside the Bank of America in North Hollywood, California, the full force of the Los Angeles Police Department is in the midst of a gunfight with two bank robbers, Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matasaranu. But despite taking numerous hits to their bodies, the two robbers show no sign of going down. Are the two men invincible? Why can't these criminals be stopped? With 10 of LAPD's men already shot and injured, The police are desperate to bring the shootout to a swift conclusion.
5: The bank robbers aren't going down despite being hit. They're realizing that they've got more than the usual challenge on their hands.
1: Then, in an exceptionally bold move, Larry Phillips leaves his partner's side and starts firing down the street at the cops. Until one sharpshooting officer takes him down.
5: Phillips is finally struck by an LAPD bullet, and that's on his right shoulder. Then Phillips, realizing his fate is sealed,
1: commits a shocking act. He shoots himself and dies on the spot. Now the challenge is reduced to a single yet still heavily armed bank robber, Emil Mataserenu. When Mataserenu carjacks a pickup truck to try and make his escape, officers seize the opportunity to
5: surround him. They are in very close proximity, just the width of a car separating these three LAPD SWAT officers from this bank robber. The police open
1: fire from close range. He takes 29 direct hits and soon bleeds to death. At 10.01 AM, the massive gunfight is over. After a staggering 1,600 rounds were fired, a total of 11 police officers and seven civilians are injured. The only fatalities are the two robbers. But the question remains, how are two bank robbers able to stand up against an army of LAPD officers for three quarters of an hour? The answer lies
5: in what they were wearing that day. We came to learn that there was 41 pounds of body armor uh, that Phillips was wearing on his body. Mr. Phillips had created custom sections of body armor literally to cover all his extremities. And how we think he achieved that was taking the typical panel of a bulletproof vest, cutting it and hand-stitching it, tailoring it to the various parts of his body that he wanted to protect from gunfire.
1: By covering their bodies with this custom-made armor so that no vital organs were exposed, the two robbers were able to prolong the shootout with the LAPD resulting in one of the most unforgettable gunfights in U.S. history and cementing Larry Phillips and Emil Mataserenu's place among some of America's most notorious criminals. Here at the Los Angeles Police Historical Society, this body armor recovered from that fateful day is a reminder of the 44-minute gun battle that stunned the world. Cambridge, Massachusetts... This New England town is home to some of the nation's most prestigious universities, including the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And at the MIT Museum, great wonders of computer engineering are on display, from giant robots to high-tech roadsters. But author Thomas Bass knows that one of the most innovative objects here is confined to a tiny box.
6: It consists of a small clear plastic case, and packed inside of this tiny case are lots of electronic components. It is the world's first wearable computer. This is not an MP3 player or a GPS,
1: but something far more extraordinary. It was used in one of the most audacious gaming schemes in history, conceived by two geniuses who risked it all, and never got caught. So what is this computer? And how did it help two cunning mathematicians beat seemingly impossible odds? 1960, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Two young and ambitious MIT professors, Edward Thorpe and Claude Shannon, have set themselves the goal of solving one of the greatest mathematical mysteries of all time. Can the casino game of roulette be
6: beaten? The game consists of 38 numbered slots on a wheel. A croupier launches a ball up on a track, spinning in the opposite direction, and it settles into a numbered cup.
1: If players bet on the right number, they can win big. Conventional wisdom suggests that where the ball lands is random, and picking the right number is based on luck. But Shannon and Thorpe think it might actually be possible to predict the outcome of this game of chance.
6: They were convinced that the game was in fact beatable.
1: Thorpe has already written a comprehensive treatise on how to count cards at blackjack, but never before has anyone attempted to decode the game of roulette.
6: They were a couple of mathematical geniuses chasing the holy grail of mathematical prediction in terms of game-playing and solving puzzles that have been unsolved for hundreds of years. The two start by installing a regulation roulette wheel
1: in Shannon's basement, and they quickly get to work analyzing the
6: game. They collect hundreds of hours of information on how fast the ball slows down. When the ball begins to drop down toward the numbers, how much does it scatter? How much does it spread? How much is it randomized? And after months of
1: research, Shannon and Thorpe determine that the final resting point of the ball on the roulette wheel can indeed be predicted. But in order to make the prediction, they need three key pieces of information. The speed of the ball, the speed of the wheel, and where the ball enters the wheel. Thorpe knows the only way to calculate these three values is with a computer.
6: Thorpe has to build a predictive device that's fast enough to play the game before the game is finished. And that's not all. The computer has to be small. So
1: small, in fact, that it can be concealed under clothing so that it won't be detected by casino security. But unlike their modern-day counterparts, computers in the 1960s often fill entire rooms. And at their smallest are the size
6: of radios. Shannon and Thorpe were the first people to realize that a computer could be shrunk to the size of something that could be worn by a human being. For months, they toil away, designing and engineering a pocket-sized
1: computer that is truly revolutionary. Worn on the waist, the apparatus is connected by wires to a series of switches which run down the pant leg to the shoe, where the user can easily input data while playing at the roulette table.
6: And their toes would click every time the ball passed a fixed point. And their toes would click every time the numbers spun past a fixed point. The plan is that
1: Shannon will wear the device and tap his toes to trigger calculations. And the resulting data will then be transmitted wirelessly in the form of a series of beeps to a receiver in an earpiece worn by Thorpe telling him where to place the bet. It's a novel idea. But will it work?
2: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's
1: 1961, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mathematicians Ed Thorpe and Claude Shannon have devised a scheme to beat the odds at the casino game Roulette. Predicting this game of chance is a theory never before thought possible. But they have built a pocket-sized computer that will calculate where the ball will land once it's launched. It's an amazing invention, but will it work? When they conduct practice runs in their basement, the computer seems to perform well. But the real test will be in the live casinos. So in June 1961, Thorpe and Shannon head to the mecca of gambling, Las Vegas. As they step onto the casino floor, tensions are running high.
6: They have to pretend not to know each other. They have to stand next to the roulette wheel, looking like average, everyday players, while, in fact, they're scientists. At the roulette table, the two watch anxiously as the ball
1: is released. Shannon taps his toe to trigger the computer to begin its calculations. The wireless receiver starts bleeping in Thorpe's ear, and the mathematician lays down his chips accordingly. The clandestine team holds their breath as the ball stops in the exact spot that the computer predicted it would. And they win. Thorpe calmly collects his chips, and the two continue on a winning streak. But then, Thorpe notices
6: a woman staring at him in shock. At one point, the little earpiece works its way out of his ear canal, and the woman who's standing next to him thinks that some strange creature is crawling up his neck. And she screams and turns away from the table. And it's at that point that Thorpe realizes he needs to excuse himself.
1: Thorpe and Shannon make a swift exit out of the casino, fortunately without arousing any suspicion from security. Although the sum of their total winnings that
6: day remains a mystery, they
1: declare the experiment to be an unqualified success.
6: It was a very exciting moment, proving that roulette could be beaten. But the two vow
1: never to use this computer again. These two cunning calculators had achieved their goal by building a revolutionary device and cracking a mathematical puzzle that was thought to be unsolvable. As for betting big, they'd rather not gamble on getting caught. Nearly a decade after its debut in Vegas, Thorpe and Shannon donate their roulette computer to the MIT Museum. A predecessor to the iPod, pedometer, and other wearable computers of today, this revolutionary device is on show, an example of a concept years ahead of its time. In the nation's capital, the esteemed Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History is home to a host of national treasures. From the Vassar telescope to President Lincoln's top hat. But curator Peggy Aldrich Kidwell knows that among the famous relics housed here is an object that has been nearly forgotten.
0: We have a large wooden cone painted bright orange one end of it, there's a flatter space with several windows in it.
1: This is a section of a very unusual weapon. Some believed it to be powerful enough to defend the United States against enemy attackers. But its operational requirements were unquestionably strange. What role did this device play in one of the most bird-brained schemes in military history? 1942. As World War II rages on, German U-boats are terrorizing the North Atlantic, sinking American ships and jeopardizing the Allied effort. In an attempt to improve defense technology, the U.S. invests in the development of automatic self-guided missiles. Attached to military aircraft, the missiles are intended to strike ground targets on land or at sea, but the guidance technology used within the missiles is rudimentary and inefficient.
0: Coming up with an accurate way of aiming missiles was of major concern to the United States government.
1: Even the most unlikely Americans emerged to try to help the Allies to victory, including one behavioral scientist from the University of Minnesota. His name? B.F. Skinner.
0: Skinner, like most scientists of his time, was highly concerned about helping the Allies in the war effort.
1: While military scientists are experimenting with radar technology, Skinner is rethinking missile guidance in a totally new way. And his inspiration comes from a most unusual source,
0: birds. One day he noticed a flock of birds, and he thought that the instincts of birds might in some way be adopted for use in guidance of missiles.
1: Unconventional? Yes. But Skinner knows that not only do birds have a good sense of direction, but they can also be easily trained. So he devises a plan to insert pigeons into a nose cone that will attach onto the head of a regulation U.S. military warhead. Skinner believes he can train the birds to control an electrical guidance system that will effectively act as a steering wheel directing the bomb to its target. In February of 1943, Skinner presents his proposal to the U.S. government's Office of Scientific Research and Development. And remarkably, the agency grants him $25,000 to develop an organic homing device, codenamed Project Pigeon.
0: The United States Armed Forces were desperate at this time for ways of guiding missiles in a more accurate way and willing to try out a large number of things.
1: Skinner sets about designing this prototype nose cone, now at the Smithsonian, that would eventually attach inside the head of a missile. The concept is that three pigeons acting as pilots will be restrained in individual tight-fitting cockpits. But the question remains... How will Skinner teach pigeons to accurately steer the missile? It's 1943. As World War II rages on, the U.S. military is determined to develop a new breed of missile, one that can be effectively guided to its target many miles away. While engineers work at refining radars and targeting systems, one man has an extraordinary idea to use trained pigeons to steer a missile. It sounds ridiculous, but will it work? Behavioral scientist B.F. Skinner's plan is to teach the birds to identify and peck at moving images on a screen that depict the enemy targets. He trains the birds by rewarding them with grain every time they correctly peck at an image of the target. Once the three pigeons are inserted into the nose cone of the actual missile, Skinner's hope is that the birds acting as pilots will peck at the real target, which will be visible on a screen. Cables harnessed to each bird's head will produce a signal that mechanically adjusts the rudder of the missile, essentially acting as a steering wheel. The
0: hope was that all three of them would peck simultaneously, and that would direct the missile to its target. Skinner places the pigeons into his nose
1: cone prototype and begins his tests. Remarkably, the top performers hit their targets 80% of the time. The high accuracy rates are truly astounding.
0: Skinner was delighted with the kinds of results he could achieve with the pigeons.
1: But Skinner's encouraging findings suddenly fall flat with the US military who, using improved radar technology, have more reliable missile delivery systems underway. And in late 1944, the government pulls the plug on Project Pigeon.
0: Skinner was severely disappointed. He had really hoped to make a contribution to the war effort. In
1: 1945, the Allies declare victory in Europe and Japan. In time, Skinner becomes a renowned behaviorist, working with animals and humans alike. This missile nose cone now on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History pays tribute to a band of pigeons and an innovative psychologist who hoped to aid the allies in World War II. On the island of Manhattan is an institution celebrating the proud achievements of a world-famous metropolis, the Museum of the City of New York. But here, hidden away in the collection's archive, is an object that curator Christine Rytok knows is linked to one of the most bizarre and chilling catastrophes ever to strike Gotham.
7: It's about six and a half inches in length. It's rather small, it's delicate, and it has a dedication on the front for the ceremony for which it was used. What
1: connection does this sterling silver and ebony trowel have to the destruction of one of New York City's most iconic buildings? 1912, on the corner of Broadway and Cedar Streets in New York City's Financial District is the imposing Equitable Life Assurance Building. Built in 1870, the renowned seven-story edifice is heralded as Manhattan's first skyscraper. In addition to housing impressive law and banking offices, it is also home to much of the city's wealth.
7: The vault in the basement of the Equitable Building housed bonds, stocks, and securities worth over several billion dollars.
1: But in the early hours of January 9th, disaster strikes.
7: Shortly before 6 AM, several fire alarms went out to Manhattan. Smoke was billowing out from the Equitable Building.
1: New York City firefighters rushed to the scene, only to face a mounting catastrophe. At risk from the Inferno are the precious contents of the building's vaults, which were primarily constructed to protect against theft, not flames.
7: If a fire were to reach the vault, not only the New York City economy, but the U.S. economy and possibly the global economy would have been lost to a fire.
1: As the flames rage through the building, the Inferno quickly escalates out of control.
7: The combustible nature of a lot of the materials, in particular the finishes on the wood, caused the fire to spread even more quickly throughout the building.
1: But it's not just the building's large size or its fine finishes that present a challenge for the New York Fire Department. Rather, it's another unexpected obstacle that virtually paralyzes their efforts. The weather.
7: That morning of the fire, it was incredibly cold. It was very windy, and the firefighters were operating with hoses and with water that very quickly froze up.
1: And compounding the problem is a 40-mile-per-hour wind that turns the water jets into a spray that then freezes over the firemen themselves.
7: The firefighters themselves were turning into large icicles. Some of the firefighters had to be chiseled out of their icy coatings.
1: With several men incapacitated and literally frozen in the ice... Firefighters urgently call for backup from ladder and engine companies around the city. But by the time reinforcements arrive on the scene, they encounter a truly unprecedented spectacle.
7: The building very quickly became an impenetrable fortress of ice. Firefighters were greeted with beautiful terror, a beautiful disaster, and because of the ice in front and the flames behind, it must have been awesome in the true sense of the word.
1: How will New York's finest
7: extinguish
1: a burning building that is completely encased in ice? It's January 9th, 1912. The Equitable Building in New York City, the nation's first skyscraper and probably the most important financial office building in the city, is burning out of control. If the fire reaches the building's vaults, billions of dollars will be destroyed. But the extreme winter temperatures pose an unusual problem. As firemen spray water from the outside, it instantly freezes, coating the seven-story building with thick layers of ice. So how will New York's bravest put out the blaze? As the inferno rages on, the interior floors of the building begin to collapse, decimating the structure.
7: As the fire is continuing, it is gaining strength and it is moving up the building and it is quickly heading towards the roof. To
1: combat the blaze as it burns upward, firemen take their hoses into neighboring buildings and douse the flames from above. From this higher vantage point and close proximity, the water doesn't freeze and finally reaches the interior of the building. Nearly six hours after the fire began, firemen finally have the flames under control. But the disaster has claimed the lives of six people. All that remain in the aftermath are smoldering ashes. The Equitable Life Assurance building has been largely destroyed.
7: The floors had collapsed. The building was compromised. It needed to be torn down and rebuilt, essentially.
1: But what of the billions of dollars stored in the vaults? Fortunately, because the fire had started on the ground floor and spread upward, The vaults in the basement were left virtually untouched. An investigation into the source of the fire finds that a careless employee caused the blaze by lighting his office stove and flicking his still-burning match into a rubbish bin. In the wake of the destruction, the Equitable Life Assurance Company makes plans to rebuild on the very same property. This time, taking extra precautions for fire safety.
7: The next building had greater access to water. It had escape routes. They try to use this experience to prevent such a disaster in the future.
1: For the skyscrapers unveiling on April 29, 1916, the mayor of New York, John Mitchell, is invited to lay the building's cornerstone. On hand is this sterling silver trowel now housed at the Museum of the City of New York.
7: He used it to give its blessing to this large building. The new building was 38 stories. It was taller than any other office building. So they came back bigger and better from the disaster.
1: Today, this elegant trowel remains a relic from the aftermath of one of the most bizarre catastrophes ever to strike the island of Manhattan. From the sprawling grasslands of Topeka rises the imposing Kansas Museum of History. Inside, the proud heritage of this prairie state is on display from westward migration to the Industrial Revolution. But one object stands as a reminder of a bleak era in our nation's past.
4: It is about eight inches by 12 inches. It's yellowed from age. Black bold lettering, printed on paper.
1: Historian Francesco Amini knows that in the early 20th century, the single word spelled out on this sign foretold a death sentence. Influenza.
4: The person who reads it knows it's a warning, a warning that they could become sick too. Today,
1: the flu is not usually considered fatal. But less than a century ago, one lethal strain threatened to wipe out human civilization. So, what caused the deadliest disease outbreak in modern history? March 1918, Fort Riley, Kansas. As the United States prepares to enter World War I, thousands of young Americans are training for combat at the Kansas base.
4: Fort Riley was the main training ground for all of the Midwest. Over 52,000 troops could be there at once. But none are prepared for the enemy they're about to face. On March 4th, one of the privates from Fort Riley reported sick. He had a headache, chills, Fever and achiness. At first, the doctors thought it was just a common cold. But by noon, there were over a hundred men reporting the same symptoms. Before long, thousands of soldiers are infected with the
1: mysterious disease. Army doctors face the harsh reality that this ailment is no common cold.
4: About 46 soldiers died that spring at Fort Riley.
1: In the months that follow, the disease abates and doctors chalk up the outbreak to a bout of seasonal flu.
4: The doctors in the camp were not generally alarmed by this. Seasonal influenza comes and goes and is generally not seen as a serious threat. As summer approaches,
1: soldiers from Fort Riley travel to the east coast before deploying to Europe to fight. But this particular journey proves to have a devastating outcome.
4: As troops transported back and forth, they spread this influenza with them. It hit the eastern seaboard between August and September of 1918. An outbreak
1: erupts in Boston, and this time the flu begins infecting American civilians as well as soldiers.
4: When it came to Boston, a few would show up to hospitals, and then the next thing they knew, hundreds, and then thousands. It was a major epidemic, and many people were dead.
1: Doctors are baffled, as seemingly healthy people fall ill and die within days.
4: This influenza was not typical. Young men, otherwise healthy men, were dying. And as the war
1: rages on, infected soldiers spread the disease across continents. Now a pandemic, influenza is claiming the lives of millions and millions of people around the world. Panic sets in at home and abroad as doctors scramble to get a grip on the disease that is decimating the human population.
4: There were a number of top scientists who were all working around the clock to figure out what can we do to cure influenza.
1: But with the disease now striking seemingly every corner of the globe, its reign of terror has just begun. It's October, 1918. A deadly virus is sweeping the globe, killing millions and devastating the human population. It's the worst pandemic since the Black Death. Its name, influenza. As health officials struggle to contain the disease, the public wonders how many more must die before the outbreak is over.
4: Life changed all over the country, the ways in which people structured their day. If they weren't sick, they were caring for someone who was sick. Influenza touched the lives of nearly everyone in America.
1: With a staggering one-quarter of the US and one-fifth of the world now afflicted with influenza, it seems virtually impossible to avoid infection. Without medication or a cure, the only apparent defense against this relentless flu is separation and quarantine. To that end, public officials begin issuing signs to doctors, just like the one in the collection of the Kansas Museum of History.
4: A sign like this was posted on an influenza victim's home. That was meant to warn them that other people could get sick upon entry.
1: Although placards like these are believed to help dramatically reduce the spread of the disease, influenza continues to ravage the population. The body count is overwhelming cities across the globe, including Topeka, Kansas, where the outbreak first started.
4: Topeka, Kansas, actually, had to hire road crews to dig grapes. In New York City, bodies piled up in cemeteries. We just didn't have a capacity to deal with this many people dying all at once.
1: And casualties keep rising after the end of World War I in November of 1918, stoking the fear that this pandemic could actually wipe out the human race. Until 1920, when the spread of the disease abruptly halts.
4: As quickly as it started, it vanished. Between 50 million and 100 million people worldwide died between 1918 and 1920. But what has finally put an end to this deadly disease?
1: And why had the healthiest people in society been the most vulnerable to attack? The answer would have to wait for modern science.
4: In 2006, scientists were able to decode the genetic sequence of the 1918 influenza that killed so many. Scientists hypothesized that this deadly influenza strain caused a person's immune system to overreact. The
1: healthier the individual infected, the stronger their immune response.
4: In trying to combat the virus, the immune system ended up killing its host.
1: As for its sudden end... Quite simply, the virulent bug had run its course.
4: There was just no one left to infect. Eventually, the global human population became immune and built up a collective immunity to that particular strain of influenza.
1: While this strain of influenza died out nearly a century ago, its descendants, like the H1N1 virus, still exist today. And scientists continually monitor this disease's mutations for fear a pandemic could return. Here at the Kansas Museum of History, this simple sign serves as a reminder of the effort to contain one of the world's deadliest viruses against tremendous odds. From a pocket-sized computer to a pigeon-guided missile, bulletproof armor to a frozen skyscraper. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.